Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Again, I'm glad you could join us as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. We'll be in the sixth chapter today, and as we dig into the text, there's going to be some weighty issues that we deal with, and um, well, hopefully it will challenge us challenge us in our faith and challenge us to greater obedience to Christ and the clinging to him for our salvation. So I'm glad you could join us today as we explore this text, as we delve into the word of God, and as we seek to truly grasp hold of scripture. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we turn to you today seeking to hear your voice. Lord, give us a clarity of mind, a discernment of spirit. Give us ears to hear and a heart that is sensitive to the promptings of your spirit. As we study your word, use it to challenge us and to call us to greater obedience, that we may glorify you and point others to your kingdom. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we begin looking at chapter six, uh, just a quick reminder, if you haven't been with us for the study up to this point, you need to back up and start at the beginning. Uh, The discussion going throughout the book of Hebrews is a discussion that builds and it uses multiple points of reference from Jewish history, comparing how Christ is supreme or superior to these aspects of Jewish history and Jewish faith. Um, not negating the Jewish faith, but talking about how the things in the Jewish faith pointed towards Christ, but in a an insufficient way, if you will. And that what was seen as the salvation brought by the law or the words of Moses as a prophet or by the temple and the temple sacrifices all pale when compared to Christ. And that's the discussion that's taking place. As we get into chapter 6, it builds on that that subject that was broached at the end of chapter five that that called to spiritual maturity to to being growing believers to being uh, mature in our faith and teaching others and he's kind of fussing at them that they ought to be mature they ought to be eating if you will spiritual meat but they're still stuck on the milk and in six he begins to take the discussion further and he lays some groundwork and says okay here's the things we're not going to go back and rehash because you should know these uh it's not really something we've got to cover again so we're going to pick up and go for what that means as we move forward and that's where the discussion goes now i will remind you the context of chapter six because we're going to get into parts of chapter six that Uh, Frankler described as some of the most difficult passages of the New Testament. And it's a short chapter. So you think, really? Yeah, they are. And some of the most uh, contentious as far as interpretation and differing views on. And I'm going to give you my view on it. And you're welcome to have your view and uh, read up on other views. But I'm pretty confident in my understanding of Scripture taking into account the larger body of scripture and what it has to say. So looking at chapter six, it is still in that discussion referring back to the Israelites wandering in the desert and the judgment that befell those that turned from God, those that were disobedient to God. And it also culminates at the end of chapter six, 
with that reference again to the temple worship, to entering into the Holy of Holies, and that we're able to do that through Jesus, our high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that sets us up for moving into chapter seven, which will be the next installment of our podcast, where we really delve into who was Melchizedek and what is all this reference to Melchizedek stuff. We'll get there next time. But this time we have that progression from spiritual milk to Christ as our high priest. So let's take a look at chapter six. It begins this way. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Again, that discussion of, you know, you've, you've been on spiritual milk. It's time to move to meat. He says, let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. So he's setting the baseline. He's going, look, we don't need to rehash these basic concepts. You know them. You may not be doing anything with them, but you know them. So we're not going to spend the time going over the basics again and again and again. It's it's almost he's, I would describe it as he's talking about that, um, that way we fall into sometimes in church life, uh, 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 paralysis by analysis. You know, we just want to go over the basics again and again and again and again and, and analyze them. And it's like, it's not that complex. Okay. We're sinners separated from God, condemned to hell. God loved us. He stepped in, did everything necessary to save us. Christ is our atoning sacrifice, took the price of our sin upon himself. When we repent, turn from our old way of life, our rejection of God, and turn towards him, placing our faith in him and living for him, we receive the gift of salvation. Um, it's not rocket science. It's really not that difficult to explain or to understand the challenge is, and what can become excruciatingly difficult in an individual's life, is placing your faith in Christ. And there's where it gets challenging. Because that's the step you have to take. It's not an acknowledgement of those other things. Those other things all being true. But it's placing your faith in Christ and living out that faith. Now, with verse 4, we enter into that difficult discussion, that that passage that is generally referred to as one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, because there's lots of questions about, well, does it say you can lose your salvation? And some groups go, yeah, you can lose your salvation. And others like, no, you can't. I fall into the camp that says, no, you can't. I'm a, I'm a once saved, always saved kind of guy you know, that once our faith is in Christ, we are in the hand of God and nothing can remove us. And, and that part of nothing can remove us is we can't jump out either. Now, the question is, have we placed our faith in Christ? We can be playing along. We can just be hanger honors. Is, is that a term? It is now. Um, 
you know, we could just hang around the church and talk churchy and do churchy stuff and think we're okay and really not be okay. And then hit that point of life where we have to live by our faith, where, where the pressures of life are on us, where our faith is being tested and we find out that there isn't any faith and we walk away. But that's on us. That's not on Christ. And that's just showing what's really been going on in our hearts instead of what we have put forward as our public face. We need to not confuse those things. So verse four begins this way. For it is impossible. And I'll tell you that word there, impossible. It is a translation of a Greek word that means it is not possible. I know that sounds like I'm trying to make a joke out of it. I'm not. There is no finessing of that word. Well, it's unlikely. It probably won't happen. It's really difficult. No, it cannot happen is literally what the word means. It is not able to happen. It is impossible. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Now, I really like the way the New Living Translation renders that here. Some of the other translations, it gets difficult in the wording, and it's like, okay, what? This one's really straightforward. And again, I want to draw you back to the illustration that the author of Hebrews is using, comparing the Old Testament, particularly Exodus story, to the New Testament and to the salvation found in Christ, that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He's the law embodied in the flesh. Christ is the greatest prophet. He's not Moses who spoke representing the household of God. He is the household of God. He's not a high priest. He is the high priest, the sinless high priest. Using that imagery of the Exodus, much of the terminology here about those that have, have seen the good things of heaven shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, uh, those who were once enlightened. What's it talking about? Well, compare that to the children of Israel wandering in the desert, that entire generation whose corpses, as the previous passage is related, whose corpses litter the wilderness they saw God. They traveled viewing the Shekinah glory of God manifested in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, leading them in the wilderness. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They experienced the manna, the what is it delivered from God for them to eat on a daily basis. They saw water come from a stone so that they could have something to drink. And yet they rejected God. And the price of that rejection was their bodies laying in the wilderness dead. Now, 
if that was the penalty of rejecting God in the wilderness, can you imagine how that would translate New Testament? How that would translate to having heard the message of the gospel, having seen the signs and wonders, having seen the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, God at work in the lives of his people, having been alongside that, and then rejecting it. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's drawing that parallel saying to see all that and to be along for all that, not necessarily be a recipient of all that, but be along for all that and have that much of an awareness of Christ and then reject him is like the children of Israel in the wilderness rejecting God after all they had seen and experienced. And their judgment was to lay dead in the wilderness. They would not set foot in the promised land. In a New Testament sense, those that have rejected Christ, especially those who have experienced the message of the gospel, have seen the power of God manifest and then rejected and then walked away and said, no. The judgment on them is going to be terrible. That is the discussion framed here, I think. I don't think this is saying anything about having salvation and then losing it. This is those that have had that much of an intimate relationship with what it is to authentically know Christ, but never taken that step and then chosen to walk away rejecting it. Maybe those who knew about Christ, but didn't know Christ and then turned and walked away. The reality is that by rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. They are in the same boat as those that stood at the foot of the cross and mocked and said, you are not God, because look, we nailed you to a cross. Because look, you're humiliated and shamed. You're a criminal. You deserve this. They've taken the seat, if I can borrow from Psalms, they've taken the seat of the scoffer. And there's a consequence to that. Well, he goes on and says, when the ground in verse seven, when the ground soaks up the falling rain and it bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if the field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. And by the way, if we look thorns and thistles, Old Testament, Genesis, that's a sign of God's curse. It's useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. So there's how he's describing God's interaction, God's judgment on our lives. Are we a ground that soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop? Because then that's a sign of God's blessing. But if we are a field that bears thorns and thistles, our destiny is to be burned. Judgment. 
Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Now, he's talking there about what was that greatest command of God, that we love one another. That is the manifesting of our spiritual relationship with Christ out in relationship with those around us. And so we seek to live that out, and he's encouraging them, continue to live that out. Why? Because it is evidence. It is fruit. It shows your relationship with Christ. It is an outpouring of your faith in Christ that you can love one another, that you care for the other believers, and that you still do, that it's not something that's a a passing thing. You did it for a while, and you decide, I don't want to bother anymore. No. He says, our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain, make certain that what you hope for will come true. A reminder there that make certain that, that, that be assured of your faith, um, um, confirm your faith. That is an endurance till the end that you not give up and walk away. Because to give up and walk away is to declare that that faith was never really there. Verse 12, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their, here it is, faith and endurance. Because if it's genuine faith, it endures. Again, that reference back to Job that was given to us in an earlier chapter. That faith and endurance. Our faith must endure. And if our faith doesn't endure, it wasn't faith. It was something else. It is fundamentally important for us to cling to our faith in Christ and to live it out consistently and to live it out for all the days of our life. Not just for a while. It's not a a poker chip you pick up early in life. Oh, I've got my faith in Christ. And then you stick it in a drawer somewhere. And at the end of your life, you try to cash it in. Um, You know, your faith in Christ is not a get out of hell free card that you just cash in at the end and, and ignore the rest of the time. No. Faith in Christ is a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior lived out throughout your life. It is a faith that endures. Cling to Christ. Let that faith endure. Don't be like those corpses scattered in the wilderness because they rejected God. Don't be them. Thank you.
So as much as we see so far in the sixth chapter of Hebrews, there has been warning. There has been this encouragement to cling to Christ, to be genuine in our faith in Christ and not to, um, not to play at it, not to fail to persevere, to endure in our faith. Um, it's been a lot of warning, a pretty dire warning, I would say. And from that, the author begins to shift in verse 13, presenting more the the promise and the hope, focusing not so much on the, what happens if we don't cling to Christ, but instead focusing more on what it means to cling to Christ. He says in 13, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Now, if you want to go back and you want to read in Genesis the the pledge that God made to Abraham, that covenant, you'll recall that he, he, he fell asleep and, and in that sleep he had a, a vision. And in that vision, there were these animals that were cut in half and laid apart and this smoking torch passed between these animals as God made these promises to Abraham. Understand that is the symbolism of a covenant. Covenants in that day and age, you would take animals and sacrifice them and you would literally split them in half and lay the halves apart. And the two people making the agreement, making the covenant would pass between those animals. And it was symbolic of... Um, you know, my possessions are split and there is, is both benefit and penalty. Should I break this covenant? It will cost me. When God made his covenant with Abraham, Abraham did not pass between. But instead that, that flaming smoking torch passed between, representing the presence of God, think again, Shekinah glory, um, passed between and God made the promises. It was kind of a one-sided covenant. Now, there are benefits to the covenant and there are detriments to the covenant, but man was already in a detrimental state. Man was already fallen. God's promise to Abraham was a promise of blessing and saying, okay, if you don't follow me, then these are the things that will naturally occur. But if you follow me, here is the blessing. And so again, it says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God promised. Now, that one sentence in verse 15 covers a lot of history because there was a significant amount of time between God's promise about multiplying Abraham's descendants and Abraham actually having descendants, Isaac, um, being the child of the promise. Now, there was another child, but Isaac is the child of the promise the child through which the promised savior would come. But Abraham had to wait patiently. He had to trust all those years without seeing the evidence that God's promise was legitimate, that God was faithful. 
Literally, Abraham had to have faith. A hope rooted in faith in God that there may not have been evidence for in front of him, but knowing God had promised. Can you see why the author of Hebrews might mention that? Because the plight of believers, that call to faith and endurance, means that you may not see it in front of you. But that faith and that hope that is rooted in that faith, because it's rooted in a trust in God, carries you through that time until the point at which you see the promises of God actualized. So there's a strong parallel there, and that's why the author of Hebrews is saying that. He's drawing that parallel. Again, the Old Testament and the New Testament, Christ being superior to what was. Again, verse 15, Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who receive the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. Hmm. So God bound himself with an oath on himself that he would not change, that the terms of the promise would hold. The promise could be, or those who receive the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So in verse 18, it says, So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. That's one of the character, one of the, one of the aspects of God's nature. It's impossible for him to lie. It will not happen. Going on, therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. So, now he's really bringing the image forward. Our hope in God is an anchor that holds. It is secure. I don't know what terms we could use to state it more solidly than he has already said in this text. Our hope is grounded in Christ. It is rooted in the promise of God. God who is completely trustworthy. God who, in spite of the fact we may not see it in front of us right now, we know we can trust. We know we can place our faith in him and that our hope for the future, for eternal life, for right relationship with God is in him. Now, if that's true in your life, then you must persevere. Your faith must endure to claim you have faith in Christ and then reach a point where you walk away from it. You do not have an abiding faith in Christ. And the encouragement of this text is cling to Christ. You may say, well, why? Well, salvation, 
eternity with him. All of the things he has promised here. But again, I want to read 20 and the following. And remember, all of this is in the context. It's all part of a larger discussion in the book of Hebrews of the New Testament and Christ being superior to what was. We did have the temple and the high priest, and and the temple is a symbolic earthly representation of the throne room of God. I refer you back to the study of Revelation. Listen to what he says. In fact, let me back up 19 and 20. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. What he's saying there is it leads us through that barrier curtain into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest on the day of atonement could enter into the Holy of Holies. And then only after having purified himself for his own sins could he enter and make a sacrifice, offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But all that pointed somewhere. Where did it point? It pointed to Jesus. And now our faith, our faith and hope that lie in Christ That hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor, and it leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. It leads us to the place of right standing before God. And then verse 20, Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So not only do we have the privilege of entering into the Holy of Holies, Christ himself led us in there. He went in there himself. He's already gone in there for us. He's already gone in there and made that atoning sacrifice on our behalf. Think, um, think crucifixion, think Good Friday, think of the death of Christ on the cross and at that moment when the earth shook and the sky went dark and the veil in the temple split, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. When scripture talks about that veil splitting, that's the inner veil. That is the the thick curtain that walled off the Holy of Holies. It was God visibly removing the physical barrier in the temple that represents his throne room and splitting it open at the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek making offering to atone for our sins, not an atonement that had to be redone year after year, but an atonement that paid for all of it forever. That is the promise of salvation we find in Christ. That is what Jesus has done for us. That is why our faith and hope in God is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. And it leads us through that curtain into God's inner sanctuary. It gains us the right to be called the children of God. To have that relationship with our Heavenly Father, with our Creator. When we had no claim to that relationship prior, we were 
sinful, twisted, broken creatures, rebellious against our Creator. But through the promise of Christ, through placing our faith in Him, we get to become children of the promise. We get to have that anchor. We get to enter into the presence of God. Not just in an earthly sense, but in an eternal sense. We're made right with Christ. Now, that reference to the, he has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek is where the chapter finishes off. And of course, the message there is so strong to persevere, to endure in our faith. That we will inherit God's promises because of our faith and endurance. Verse 12. I would say that's the overarching message of chapter 6. But it also carries the discussion forward. Uh, the, The visual imagery there. Don't be like the children of Israel that rebelled and their bodies lie in the desert. Instead, cling to the promise, that promise being Christ. Cling to the promise. Endure in faith and hope and enter the promised land. Enter into the presence of God in his inner sanctuary. That's the message of chapter 6. And if you don't have that kind of enduring faith, if you have not placed your hope in Jesus, now's time. Because the warning is clear. The cost of not placing your faith in Christ is everything. The cost of playing at faith in Christ, but not enduring in that faith, not having a genuine abiding faith in Christ, but just a name, just an involvement in church life, just a t-shirt you wear, a radio station you listen to, that is not an abiding faith in Christ. Cling to Him. Let Him be that refuge and that anchor for your soul. Place your abiding faith in Him and endure, whether you see it right now or not, endure in faith. Because we have a high priest that has done all the heavy lifting for us. And when we place our faith in him, we get the blessing, the glory, the gift of entering into God's sanctuary, entering into his presence. It is an awesome gift. Now, next time around, we will delve into chapter seven and we'll really unpack this idea of Melchizedek, who he was in scripture and what he represents. So I hope you'll join us next time around. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the challenges to our lives, the challenges to our faith that cause us to ask, do we truly cling to you? And Father, we thank you 
that you allow us to become children of your promise. That we can find our security and our strength in you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and for your word that speaks to us of him. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.